HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on this last day of July. You have tuned into the Farm Report, and I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. And today we're going to be talking blueberries. Tis, tis the season. We are on the line with Ed Flanagan. He's the CEO of Wyman's of Maine. Ed, welcome to the show. Hi, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited. You know, I haven't done a blueberry episode um, in a while. For folks who, who want to hear some more kind of history uh, on the blueberry, check out episode 182. Um, because today, Ed, I really want to learn a little bit more about the work you guys are doing up at Wyman's. But before we get into that, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, um, Kaizen. The, the Japanese discipline um, of, of leaning towards sustainability in all things you do. Can you tell me a little bit about um, where that idea came about and how it works for you at Wyman's? Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> well, interestingly enough, I mean, the Japanese have taken the concept of continuous improvement, which is, uh, their term for that is Kaizen, which is K-A-I-Z-E-N in uh, English. And... Um, uh, and they have basically adapted it. Actually, it was a post-war, World War uh, concept that was introduced by an American named W. Edwards Deming. He was part of uh, MacArthur's reconstruction team, and um, and he instituted it into their uh, production. And so, like, Toyota, for example, became the masters of it. And it really has permeated, uh, you know, the whole Japanese culture. And we do a lot of business with the Japanese, uh, and we're proud of that. And uh, they are very demanding. Uh, no matter how well you did last year, they want you to do better this year, uh, whether it's removing more stems or making the size more uniform, which is pretty difficult to do. Um, 
whatever it is, uh, they want you to do better. And so that's the concept. I mean, it seemed to me uh, like a pretty good way to go about our business. And if we could... Uh, if we could please the Japanese market, then the other markets were just that much easier. <laughs> Japanese always leading, always pushing, pushing us forward. Well, now the Wyman's has been around since uh, 1874. You guys operate in Maine, uh, harvesting berries from over 10,000 acres. And um, I wonder if you can just briefly for us give a give folks kind of a rundown of the difference uh, between the wild blueberries and and cultivate the cultivated blueberries that you guys focus on. Sure. <clears throat> well, wild blueberries are one of North America's three native fruits, along with uh, Concord grapes and cranberries, and <clears throat> so they've they've been here since basically the glaciers receded uh, that's why they they tended to uh you know to find their home in the sandy glacial soil of of Maine and uh um, a good bit of the maritime provinces and parts of Quebec so uh they are different uh than the cultivated blueberries that your consumers would be familiar with in the fresh produce aisle because uh, they're smaller uh but in terms of how they're grown, um, they are a root system as opposed to a crop that's planted. So they're either there or they aren't, and um, they don't trans uh, they don't transplant. So um, in in a way, they're more like a mineral resource than they are a crop. But you know, we're glad to have them, and so uh, they they tend to like the same soil that pine trees like, an acid soil, and so. Uh, over the years, it was first the Native Americans that used wild blueberries for a, a host of things other than just food. Um, they used them for medicines, and, you know, I guess what we've learned about the health benefits of blueberries lately is they knew what they were doing way back then. But one of the things they also did was they noticed that blueberry plants, uh, you know, perform better in ground that had suffered from fires. Uh, and, and so... They took up the practice of burning the land, and what, in effect, that did was it it basically killed the competing vegeta- uh, vegetation, uh, a fire like that, but it didn't hurt the blueberry root. So the blueberry root then the next year would have a chance to thrive and lead to a better crop. So, so that practice continued on, you know, for quite a long time, uh, probably about the 80s. Uh, we started to wind out of burning fields because, <clears throat> well, your neighbors didn't like that so much anymore. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> yeah, and um, and it got very expensive to use the type of uh, oil that uh, you know got that job done the best. So now what we do is we mow our fields with these fine mulching mowers, and because it's a thin sandy soil to begin with, um, and I'm speaking Maine now, um, we leave that mulch on the ground. So, um, and then the, the so the actual berries themselves are smaller. The 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 bushes that they grow on are are smaller. And I think you it's so interesting to me that like you either have wild blueberries or you don't, which kind of circles us back. I think in some ways to the Japanese who are always kind of like fascinated by uh, you know site specific to terroir based products. I mean, there's something kind of cool about the fact that. Uh, blueberries are so, um, so why blueberries are so tied to place, and and that means I 
I think, you know, they're a resource that you have to go a long way to to protect and, and to, to manage. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit in broad strokes. Now, you guys use the integrated pest management systems. You, you know, your berries are not organic or certified organic. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you go about the management practices and how you deal with other things that are going to be competing with the berries um, from a pest or an, uh, or a weed standpoint? Sure, sure. Well, a couple of distinctions about wild versus cultivated that I, that I didn't make in my uh, prior remarks is that, of course, a wild blueberry is much smaller. It's about three times smaller than a cultivated blueberry. Uh, and generally, the flavor of a fruit is, uh, is basically condensed around the skin. And so, you know, in a handful of wild blueberries, you're going to get more flavored than you would in a handful of cultivated for that very skin-to-pulp ratio. Um, But the other uh, functional difference between wild and cultivated, uh, you know, cultivated blueberries were uh, developed, uh, you know, in, in, I think it was, uh, the Rutgers University uh, Research Station. And basically, they, they were designed from wild blueberries to grow tall and have a crop every year. We have a crop, we've learned uh, over the, well, way before my time, that the best wild blueberry crop is one, is a field that crops every other year. So uh, we only, on our, we're now up to 12,000 acres that we farm. So every year we're cropping 6,000 acres and the other six are, you know, sprouting. But um, wild blueberries, and this, um, you know, gets into some of the health properties and all, wild blueberries grow very low to the ground. Uh, it, it's what makes them um, uh, a beautiful harvest to see. Difficult for us, but beautiful, uh, you know, for visitors. They only grow about 12 inches from the ground, and so the harvesting is a little bit difficult. And uh, but uh, I, I like to explain, uh, uh, you know, to people that you know, wild blueberries didn't develop their health characteristics for us. They developed them to basically survive in a wet, cold climate, 12 inches from the ground. <laughs> uh, so. Um, so we get the ben- we happen to get the benefit of that, and uh, and let's see, Aaron, I uh, going through a long uh, answer here, and I'm not sure I'm answering your question. Was I? Oh well, so we I was just talking a little bit about kind of management practices from like a oh, pet, yeah. yeah, because one of the things I want to talk about in the second half of the show is is a work that I know is really close to your heart, looking at uh, the colony collapse disorder and the plight mm-hmm. of, of, of bees. But before we get into that, I want to just get a little bit of a sense yeah. of, you know, how you guys are, are kind of managing the health of the blueberry crop and, and, you know, where some of those kind of critical decision points come up and where maybe Wyman's is the same or different than other players in the industry. Yeah. Well, you know, um, about the question, why aren't we organic? Um, it, it ties into basically that, uh, growing low to the ground in a wet, cold climate, uh, it um, it basically is something that, using that Japanese ki- concept of kaizen, what, what farmer wouldn't want to really uh, grow an organic crop? You can get a heck of a lot more money uh, on the market for it. Uh, but there just are some crops that uh, don't lend themselves well to it. And, um, and wild blueberries is one. You know, here in Maine or in the Maritimes, you can get a very, very cold, wet spring, and um, and funguses and blights can happen in a matter of 48 hours, and and uh, so that's something that, when that happens, you have to treat for it. And and uh, in a lot of agriculture now, we're dealing with this little insect that's come across from China, 
called SWD, which is spotted wing drosophila. And that's another one where, uh, you know, once that infestation takes place, it can be very hard to control. In fact, it's, it's not the, uh, the small organic farmers in, uh, in New England for quite a, uh, you know, quite a, a hard time. Um, so what we do basically is um, we did uh, the Wild Blueberry uh, Association and Industry adopted really in the 80s. I, I guess we didn't really know we were uh, early on this, but uh, it turns out I've learned that we are. And we adopted uh, integrated pest management. And um, when you think about it, it seems very uh, common sense and logical. Uh, basically, it means that you don't go spray a field because it's May 15th and it's time to spray it. Um, you basically uh, put, uh, uh, you put some uh, test strips out in your field, sticky, basically sticky paper, and you have scouts that, uh, that you know, are constantly going from field to field, and they're looking to see what type of insects are trapped on, those, um, on that paper. And if it reaches a certain density, then, you know, then that tells you, well, this field needs to be sprayed. So, you know, when the industry went to IPM, um, you know, that really reduced pesticide use almost uh, 75%. Uh, wow. And that, that, you know, not only is that what our consumers wanted to see us trend toward, but it saves farmers a lot of money, too. Uh, so... Um, that was a natural evolutionary step for us to go to IPM. And again, because we're a, uh, a high acid food, the blueberry is tough. It doesn't, it doesn't need a whole lot of chemical protection. It's just that when something erupts, you have to basically uh, take care of it quickly. So, um, so that's how uh, we introduced IPM uh, into the business. Uh, you know, we, we really see organic farming almost like in that concept, the Japanese concept of Kaizen. I mean, that is something that, you know, we aspire to. Uh, we would like to get to that point someday where we absolutely need no preventive chemicals. And, you know, every year we set the goal of we, we look over what we uh, did last year, the fields that we, we had to spray. I mean, you know, just basically our business is like, it's like all businesses, it's becoming very data-driven. So we are capturing all of the records, and now we, you know, we can put them in uh, basic uh, spreadsheet files and analyze them for the learnings that, you know, that might come out of it. And, uh, and the goal is always to get, to get by with less. Yeah, and being able to have that data to make better decisions. Well, one of the, so, you know, the blueberry season is short, it's intense, and that brings up some issues as it regards to your, you know, labor supply. If the, you know, vast majority of your kind of harvesting and production is happening in a certain chunk of the year, how do you manage that, that flow of labor when you're really only needing people for maybe a two, two and a half month period? Oh yeah, well, you you could probably do a whole show on that. Um, <laughs> you know, my, migrant labor is uh, is very difficult in the in this country now, and um, and there are you know most of the crops in America. Well, you just couldn't bring them in uh, if we didn't have you know a good healthy migrant workforce, and um, and so you know we really want Washington to get over its infighting and come up with an immigration reform bill that uh, gets you know, gets farmers uh, the help that they need. But, you know, within that reality, uh, it, it used to be when I started with Wyman's in 93, you know, most of the high school kids around here 
made their money, made their, you know, their uh, summer money raking blueberries or working in the factories. But, you know, slowly but surely, the, you know, kids don't want to do that type of work anymore. And so, um, and the same thing with, uh, you know, the adults. I mean, it, uh, it basically, uh, everybody is looking for full-time work. And so, you know, you, we, we employ as many people full-time as, as we certainly can, but we just have, it's just the way crops go. You have this huge surge, uh, you know, in your harvest month. And so, yeah, we, we basically, our, our, our tactics, uh, you know, are to make sure we pay well. Uh, picking blueberries in Maine or working in the Maine Wild Blueberry Factory, that's as far from the border of Mexico as you can get. So they just aren't going to make that journey unless it makes uh, economic sense for them. So, uh, you know, and it's not just what you pay them, it's how, it's, it's how you house people. Uh, you know, it's the services we provide. We have a couple of uh, cantinas that are uh, basically, uh, you know, we give them the space in our migrant compound. We we subsidize their cooking gas, and uh, and you know, they put pretty good meals uh, out there. You know, uh, it's it's up to the uh, the migrants. To every every fifth cabin is a kitchen, so they can either buy their own food and cook it in our kitchens, or uh, you know, eat at the two cantinas. So, you know, how you treat people, the word spreads. And uh, and so we've been lucky to, in these difficult times of, of hiring uh, migrant workers, we've been able to keep our, our factories and our fields uh, up to uh, capacity. Yeah, and I think that is that you're hitting on a real kind of challenge that agriculture is facing and some of the kind of real issues that I think general consumers need to and myself, of course, be become a little bit more educated on on how how that labor flow works and where we can, um, you know, lend our voices to shaping a food system that we can all feel really proud of. Um, I'm curious, you know, you guys started out um, well, I guess like way back. The Wyman's was originally uh, a canning operation. Is that right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. and then yeah. So then the, the, there was obviously the transition to blueberries, and then at some point you started looking around and, and feeling the need to um, you know, expand your offering into other fruits. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about what prompted the expansion from blueberries to other berries and, and mango. Oh, sure. Well, yes, uh, Jasper Wyman started the business in 1874 as a seafood canner. Um, uh, Millbridge, Maine, where we're headquarters, was like a lot of the uh, the villages and small towns on the East Coast. There was a cannery probably every fifth or sixth town. Um, but uh, he quickly realized that the, you know, the wild blueberries that were available uh, inland, uh, inland by the matter of, you know, 10 miles, uh, were, you know, going to be a better long-term uh, prospect for him. So probably by the turn of the century, we were uh, more of a blueberry company than a seafood cannery. Um, but skipping ahead up to the 90s, um, what, we, uh, what we were uh, through the mid-90s was just a wild blueberry uh, company. And as we, we looked to spread our wings and go to the retail and the food service uh, channel of distribution um, instead of just the industrial uh, sale channel, um, we, we encountered, you know, the same, the same question by buyers, which is, you know, gee, you got anything else? Uh, and as, as it turned out, you know, wild blueberries are what we do. But, you know, as far as buying wild blueberries, if you were a Cisco 
buyer for the food service industry, or if you were a grocery buyer, it's one of many fruits that they have to carry. So, you know, we realized that if we could solve more of those problems, I mean, a frozen food buyer's got to buy a heck of a lot more frozen French fries uh, than he does frozen blueberries. So if we could bring him in his cranberries and his raspberries and his blackberries and strawberries, then, you know, then we could solve more problems for him under one roof. And, uh, and so, you know, that required uh, leaving Maine and, um, and going where we could get those other fruits. And, um, you know, the Pacific Northwest used to be a wonderful source, and it still is for raspberries and blackberries, but it's been hard for that crop to grow because of all of the, uh, well, the immigration issues and, and uh, land pressures and things like that. So we started buying fruit in Chile, uh, back in the late 90s, and we, you know, started with one container of raspberries, and now I think we're we're bringing in a, about 200 containers from uh, Chile every year, and it it really has become a big part of our um, sales profile are these other fruits, and and what happened for us that was you know pretty good luck was right about the time that that blueberries were becoming you know regarded as a healthy food was just about the same time that people started drinking smoothies. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, since our crop is totally frozen and since we do business as a frozen fruit company, um, smoothies and frozen fruits really go hand-in-hand hand with each other. So um, we've really been able to ride both the health story between bear, uh, the health story on berries and the consumer popularity of smoothies, uh, you know, into a lot of our growth. Yeah, I know that's like so hard for me to imagine that it wasn't until, you know, the early 90s that people looked at blueberries as a health food and then the rise of smoothies as well. It seems like, I don't know, something that I definitely grew up with and just assumed was kind of always around. Well, um, Ed, we're going to take just a short station break and when we come back, I want to tuck into a little bit of bee talk. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Sure. Listening to Snow Mine, piece of your pie. I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. You know, there's no more telling aspect, no more revealing virtue of a group of people having evolved in a lovely way than how they feed themselves, how they entertain, how they put food on the table, what they put on the table. Heritage Radio Network provides the clearest evidence that there's hope for us yet. Heritage Radio is like Fairway Market in that we both care deeply about what you're having for dinner tonight. Heritage Radio Network is not just about food, though. Every time I tune in, 
and I learn something about things other than food, too. Architecture, design, stuff like that. But from where I stand, I still say, if you can't eat it, what's the point? For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. Hi, I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. This summer, Heritage Radio Network is turning five. Since our launch in 2009, we've continued to bring you food and culture content like nobody else, and we need your help. Heritage Radio Network is a passionate, grassroots, action-oriented nonprofit organization. That means we depend on the support from listeners like you to keep us alive. If you love what you hear on Heritage Radio Network, visit our website and become a member today. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. And we are back. You're tuned into the Farm Report, and I am on the line with Ed Flanagan. He's the CEO of Wyman's of Maine. We've been talking blueberries for most of the show. So, Ed, obviously you guys, um, in many ways, become stewards of the wild blueberry through your work at Wyman's, but also really dependent on bees. Can you tell us why? Yeah, I sure can, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to do that, uh, Aaron. While I was uh, uh, while you were on break, I was listening to your uh, your sponsor, uh, Fairway Markets, and I'd like to give a shout out to them. They carry the whole Wyman's line, and I'm so thrilled when I'm visiting my son in Manhattan to walk into that Fairway store and see all the Wyman's products. So, thank you, Fairway. Oh man, they're uh, great. Longtime sponsors of the network. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Well, okay, so um, the honeybee. Uh, well, uh, Wyman's had gotten involved in sustainability uh, back in 2005, I think, is when I joined the Sustainable Food Laboratory. And, you know, and that was because we were wrestling with this concept of uh, organic foods and the fact that we weren't organic and the consumer was perceiving that as the, the high ground and, and how, and I thought that Wyman's was much better than the average farm, so you know, we were looking for a way to really define that uh, that ground in between, and sustainability, uh, you know, made all the sense in the world. And so, you know, we have been uh, good practitioners of that, uh, both in our environmental practices and our uh, our community uh, involvement and, and practices with our employees and, and seasonal labor. But uh, the honeybee, when the honeybee issue came up, it um, it really just cried out for special attention and. Uh, it really scared me. Um, well, one, the, the, the unwitting uh, discoverer of, of colony collapse disorder is our largest beekeeper, and, uh, and I have dinner with him whenever he's up here, and he was explaining to me uh, how he was inspecting his hives in Florida one day, and, and all of a sudden, uh, instead of you know, dead bees on the out, uh, around the uh, perimeter of the hive indicating that there was a problem, he looked in, and there were, there were no dead bees. There were no bees at all. And so it was a real mystery, and um, he pointed me on to uh, Penn State, uh, which has a wonderful entomology department, and um, and so we started to um, you know just contribute to their uh, you know their cost of doing their research, um, and uh, it was one of those things you know the the environmental community, or I guess uh, in many areas now we talk about stakeholders. And uh, and I used to think that stakeholders were people that wanted to stick their nose in your business, whether you wanted them to or not. Oh, but uh, <laughs> but really, um, a stakeholder is Wyman's in the honeybee issue for sure. I mean, we're we're out of business if uh, if there are no honeybees to put in our fields. Um, 
And so, uh, yeah, that got me very, very interested. And so we have gone about it uh, uh, two ways. Uh, we joined the Pollinator Partnership, which is uh, an organization based in San Francisco that, that does a lot of the uh, publicizing of the issue, uh, whether it's um, monarch butterflies or European honeybees. But there's really, um, uh, we had to basically, I think, uh, begin to listen to our beekeepers that were serving us in Maine, but then on Prince Edward Island, where we have our own farmland and, and growers, that island had quarantined itself from the importation of bees uh, out of fear of all of these troubles that, that the honeybee uh, hives are having. So, so we had to get in the business of being a beekeeper. So we have about 1,500 hives and a very good beekeeper uh, up there. And so we learned firsthand how you can come out of a winter and have and lose fifty percent of your your hives uh, up there. And um, and so we've we've really uh, I think been been partners with the uh, the beekeepers here. Um, you know, in the solutions, um, we we understand that you know a, a very big suspect in all of this is the family of pesticides called neonicotinoids and. Um, and so uh, Wyman's forswore using the. We never did use them, but they were the new trending uh, alternative. And so we just felt, well, if the beekeepers uh, have so much uh, reservation about it, then we better just hold off on that. And um, and so the the research goes on about it. Um, we you know we basically uh, do support the pollinator partnership. The other. Uh, the other research that we've done is with the University of Maine, where um, we are testing the uh, the hives when they arrive on our land, and we're testing them for the presence of diseases, viruses, um, pesticides. You know, we, we basically are testing for the presence of, uh, I think it's like 125 different pesticides. So, you know, these bees have come to us from somewhere, and before that from somewhere, and before that from somewhere. It's a real migratory path that they're on from the start of, uh, from middle of January till they get to us. So, so basically, we're doing a complete physical on the hive when it arrives, and then we're doing a complete physical on the hive when it leaves. And this, of course, is something that we've just turned over to the University of Maine to do. And, and we're hoping that we'll see, you know, you know, we're hoping that we'll see no difference. In other words, that nothing's happened to them negatively while they've been on Wyman's land. But, you know, the book has to be open. Every basic user of honeybees has to wonder if they're part of the solution or part of the problem. So, you know, we're, I think, uh, humble enough to know that uh, we need to look at all these things and, and be an energy source for, you know, solving it. I mean, we're not, you know, we are just Wyman's. Uh, our footprint is only so big, but, uh, you know, we, we have a, a role to play here. So, Yeah, and well, no bees, no berries, right? No bees, no berries. That's right. <laughs> and just to clarify for folks who may not be familiar, so the the bees are coming to you for a specific period of time during your season, and they're essentially you're setting up hives a- across the land that you're actively farming, and then after an- another period of time, the bees kind of get packed up and they get brought to another farm, another piece of land. That's they they kind of follow this migratory pattern as well, correct? Yeah, the whole season starts with the almond crop in California. I mean, that's the the big daddy of all 
uh, honeybee requiring crops. And so um, most of America's honeybees wind up out there uh, in the month of January. And then they just, you know, that's a long way for a, uh, a honeybee to have to travel. And then they start you know, making their way back uh, on the semi, uh, and every once in a while one of them tips over. You know, one did in Delaware, I think, this year. Uh, oh, wow. And causes, causes quite a news story. But, um, you know, they stop at other crops along the way, from apples to um, peppers and all. And then from us, I think they move on to cranberries and uh, pumpkins and things of that sort. So... So, yeah, and, you know, the interesting question, I mean, uh, this is a very complicated problem, and I think that um, that our own personal persuasion to people is, you know, let's just do the research and wait and see, and let's not jump to neonicotinoids or the varroa mite, which is a little insect that's almost like, it's almost like the deer tick and Lyme disease to humans. Uh, the varroa mite can wreck a havoc, uh, you know, in a honeybee hive. And so I think, we, you know, we've just... We've got to wait. It could be, you know, a honeybee's life cycle is only about, I think I'm right, if there's a beekeeper listening, he might say I'm crazy, but I think like a honeybee is only going to live 35 to 40 days. So, you know, when you think about it, when they're out there in uh, almond country, it's almost a whole generation that turns over while they're in almonds. And so, you know, think about us as humans if we only had one thing to eat. Uh, for most of our life, uh, and that was almond nectar and pollen. Um, and so, you know, we think like as we've become a, you know, a big sort of mono, uh, mono crop uh, country, um, that we're, we're not really doing the best thing that we can for the honeybees. I mean, they're eating all, uh, they're they're surviving on on almond, uh, you know, byproduct uh, for a while. Then, you know, when they're up here in blueberries, there's these are our lands are big, broad uh, acres, and there's not a whole lot else for them to forage on when they're here. So I think you know that's a little bit of the problem as well. You're looking, yeah, being able to well, yeah, examine the infrastructure and make some uh, decisions based on on real real facts and real data. Well, if folks want to find out more about the uh, honeybees and, and follow that organization that Ed pointed out. It's www.pollinator. Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a really interesting conversation. Yeah, thank you, Aaron. I'm uh, always happy to share uh, the the plight of agriculture. Uh, We need uh, good shows like yours, uh, just uh, letting people know that it's not easy out here. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks a lot. I'd hope to have you back soon. All right. Bye-bye. For folks who want to learn more about the work that they're doing up at Wyman's, um, check them out at www.wyman's.com. If you're in the Northeast, uh, hop into your freezer section at your local fairways and and grab a bag. But you can also find them in freezer sections across the country. And if you want to learn a little bit more about the blueberry world, definitely tune into episode 182 of the Farm Report. I sat down with Dave Yarborough, who's um, an instructor at the University of Maine. And we talked through a ton of more great blueberry information. So you can definitely get your fix this summer on the blueberries. Thanks again for tuning in to The Farm Report. This show, like all 35 of our live weekly programs, is available for free. You can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher Smart Radio, but we hope you'll visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We are a member-supported organization, so if you believe in our work, please click that Donate tab and become a member today. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned in. Yeah.
Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.